half the church left. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing, right? Okay, so here we are, and we are in this new series of basically four Sundays leading up into Christmas. I can't believe we're here already. Somehow we managed to make it through the year. <clears throat> it's a very special time of year. Advent is for Christians, right? The, the word defined is coming into being or coming into use. And I think that's pretty appropriate when you truly understand and rightly consider the birth of Jesus Christ. On that night 2,000 years ago, Jesus indeed came into being, right? He was born. And he began his journey of coming into use. So in the Christian world, the Advent word is used as a four-week celebration of, what's the word you would use? Starts with an A. Looking forward to something. It's an anticipation. That's right. Advent is an anticipation leading up to Christmas. And because we often do this almost exclusively this time of year, it's easy to tie in the idea of anticipating Christmas and the birth of Christ alone. And it's easy to focus on just Israel and them waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come. But the church today, we are not unlike Israel in the Old Testament, waiting and waiting and waiting for, hoping for, praying for, and in exile, right? They were just, they were lost. They were waiting for the Messiah. And that's us. We have a huge benefit, right? We're kind of in the middle where we can look back and see 2,000 years of the birth of Christ and the promises that were fulfilled in that. And we have the opportunity now to look forward in anticipation of what? His return. His return. So we have an awesome, really, posture, position in history to be able to see both of those things. And we do. We, we look to the future. We should, anyway, with great longing and anticipation. We want for him to come for his bride, the church. Do we not? Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you heard a few moments ago, Nick and Emily read... The Advent candle and the reading revolve around just the many prophecies that are written in this book that tell of who the Messiah was, what he was going to do, what he would be like. And when you look through the Bible, there are countless places that this actually foretells the birth of the Messiah. But rather than spending a lot of time digging into these individually, over the hundreds of years in which they were prophesied in advance, I want to spend a little bit of our time, well, let me, I'll be honest, almost all of our time, talking about the why. Why does it matter that those prophecies, not only were they foretold, but that they came to pass? What's the significance? What's the weight of that matter? Because if we miss the why, I think, if we miss the why in all of this, then Advent and Christmas itself, really, it just becomes this sort of ritual experience and we lose the weight and significance of the birth of Christ. I mean, let's be real. Like In the world today, we're fighting a battle against what Christmas is, truly. I'm not saying, you know, stand up there with your banners and put Christ back in Christmas and none of that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about for you and what it means for you and how you live that out in your daily life. Life. And I think in order to fully grasp the weight and significance of this, we need to go back to the beginning. Back to a moment in time where everything seemed lost. 
Hope was gone. Now, immediately your mind might go back to the Garden of Eden. Whose mind went there? Like, okay, sure. That's the place where humanity fell into sin, and that is the tragic moment that created our need for salvation and forgiveness of sins. You are right on the money. But think also of a moment in time not long after the garden where the height of sin had reached a climax. And God said some very hard things. Does anybody, can anybody think about where that moment might be not long after this moment? Noah. Okay. That's a good, that's a good guess. And you would be correct. The flood, right? Here's where mankind had abandoned God in every conceivable way. So we're going to be in a scripture that you're probably thinking like, really, you're going here for Advent? But yes, I am. Genesis chapter 6. We're going Genesis chapter 6. We're only going to read a couple verses. So if you have a Bible or it'll be on the screen. Genesis 6, I'm going to read verses 5 through 8. This is what the Word of God says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the text we're going to work out today. It's going to shape our time. But aren't those some tough words to hear? But we really need to consider and, and, and realize what is happening in this moment and how it impacts the way in which we celebrate the birth of Christ. Because you see, at the core, at the center of an infant in a major 2,000 years ago is the grief that God had in his heart in this moment. We have to seek to grab hold of that grief. What he experienced in that moment in order to fully value the gift of Christ. So I'm going to take some principles from a a sermon that I heard recently. Um, Paul Tripp did a series on Advent, and I listened to this, and it it resonated so much with me. So I'm I'm taking a lot of that content and, and, and presenting it to you. Um, And I'm hoping that it moves you as much as it moved me to see this season through a different lens. And in order to do that, we're going to need the Lord's help. Right, so let me pray and then we will continue. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this season, God, that we, we have the privilege and honor to gather and celebrate and wait in anticipation of this Christmas season and all that it represents, Lord. And God, it's so easy to get caught up in everything that we do in a society and a culture that in many ways celebrates Christmas through many secular and casual ways of exchanging gifts and decorating houses and having parties. And Lord, these things are great and wonderful. But without the truth, without a full realization of the birth of the Savior of the world, Lord, we miss a lot. We miss We miss it, and I don't want to miss it, Lord God. We collectively can't afford to miss what it is that we're in anticipation of 
and what you accomplished by sending your son into this world. And so help us, I pray, this morning to have a deeper appreciation for the birth of Christ. And let it shape how we live and what we do, especially now in this season. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're new with us, we do a Q&A. So if you have any questions that you'd like for us to answer, go ahead and text them to that number that's on the screen. And we'll come up here at the end and we'll answer some of those questions for you. Uh, just a way for you to interact with us and kind of get to know what's on your heart as well. And I mentioned just a minute ago, it, it may seem a little bit odd that we're here in this passage with our eyes on Christmas. Because normally we're talking about, you know, other things. <laughs> uh, and we'll get there. But, but really, we have to start here. We have to start at the beginning in order to progress through this next several weeks together. <clears throat> Take a look again at verse 6 in this passage, if you will. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved into his heart. God is broken up over what is happening on the earth in the days of Noah. Broken up, <laughs> hurt to the very core of who he is. And I don't think we often think about that. We don't think about the pain that God felt in that moment. We think about the flood, we think about the ark, we think about the rainbow, we think about all those things that we, you know, learn as kids. But we don't think about those words that say it grieved him to his heart. What an overwhelming sense of betrayal God felt in that moment. But why? What has happened that God would feel that Betrayal and that weight that he's grieved to his heart that he would want to blot out everything. What happened in that moment? Well, we only need to go back to the previous verse in verse 5. What does verse 5 say? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <laughs> I mean, this isn't just a few people going off the deep end. It's not a, even like a large group of the population just kind of dabbling in some sinful behavior. This is all the earth and all the people and all that they do, say, desire, and think is evil only forever. Like that's, that's rough. But it's inclusive. And it's about as bad as it can get. I mean, can you, can you imagine anything worse in a scenario like this? It's frightening. It's unnerving. It's almost unbelievable at the same time, but it's absolutely tragic, and yet we must seek to understand the pain and the hurt and the betrayal God is feeling here in this moment. Now, we won't ever get there. We'll never know the core of what he felt, but we can all relate. Everyone in this room has been hurt. Probably a lot of you have been betrayed, and some of you might have even been abandoned. We know the feelings that that brings. And the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this is because it's all leading up to the baby in a manger 2,000 years ago. It all ties together in ways that will bring, hopefully, an appreciation and an understanding that perhaps you've not had for Christmas and this season. So let's try to discover why this catastrophe in Genesis 6 impacted God the way that it did. So human beings, you and me and everyone that's ever lived on this earth, we were created to love. Inherently, part of what we were created to do is to love. More specifically, we were actually designed to love who? 
God. We were designed to love God, the creator, to the point that all we would ever do and think and say would be a response to our love for God and his love for us. We would love him in our words, our actions, our thoughts, everything that we would do would be colored, predicated on this love. His authority in our lives would never be in question because we have a right understanding that he created us and has a great and perfect plan for us. And this carries over to the life of every person. The idea of love, anyway. As I said, we're designed to love. So the fact of the matter is this. Every human being on this planet loves someone or something. We can't help it. Not only that, but this love, it drives what we do. You heard that old adage, right? Love will make you do crazy things. How many of you have done something crazy in the name of love? Go ahead and raise your hand. You're all liars. Get your hands up. I know you have. Maybe not you, Leon Yeah, right. But in some sense, that statement is true, right? Our love for people and for things, it motivates what we do. And that's a good thing. How many of you guys know Doug Winder? You guys remember Doug? He was an older uh, gentleman that used to be a regular attender here. Him and his wife, Angelita. Well, his wife's health has been um, diminishing um, over the last couple of years. And she is now on home hospice. And he is her sole caretaker. He's 80 years old. They've been married for 58 years. 80 years old, sole provider. A nurse comes like once or twice a week. He does everything 24-7. It's actually incredible. And I have the privilege of meeting with him every week, and he surprises me every single week that we get together. Because the first thing he does is praise God for the opportunity that he has to minister and love to his wife this way. Like, it's genuine. Like, you can tell when somebody's just kind of giving you lip service. This is genuine in the way that he does that. But secondly, you can see in him that it is truly a privilege and an honor to care for his wife in this way. You can tell by the way that he talks about his wife, the interactions and exchanges. She doesn't understand much anymore. Dementia has has basically taken, taken her. But there's these small little key moments that keep him going where she mouths I love you and and their little way of communicating. But seriously, guys, every single time that I hear him talk about it, it blows me away. It's not easy work. It's not easy physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Like it's draining if you've ever had to do these kinds of things. But that's what love is. It inspires us to do even the most challenging things. And that ties into obedience, doesn't it? Into the obedience for God. There's a joy and a privilege in serving him and living according to his righteous law. Love for God and his love for us creates a desire in us to please him and to live a life according to him with our thoughts and with our actions. This is how each human being was designed to live. Loving God and serving him with joy and gladness. But in Genesis 6-5, something has happened because there must be some other love that has claimed the heart of human beings everywhere. Because no longer do they delight to serve in God, right? (laughs) Everything that they do is what? 
It's evil. So they don't want to stay inside of his boundaries anymore. They don't want to love him and encourage, be encouraged by him or experience his joy. No. They willingly, purposefully, continually to do what is evil in his eyes. Okay, now, now I think we're getting somewhere, but let's drive the point home. What's the greatest commandment according to Jesus himself? To love the Lord your God with all that you got, right? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love, love, love. Then it could be said that the greatest offense and greatest insult to God is to love something other than him. Right? When I don't or won't love God, then I will not serve him or live by his laws. And more importantly, if I do not do these things, I cannot bring him glory. It's impossible. Bottom line, if you're not loving God, you're loving something else. Seems straightforward, right? But we need to bring this back into Genesis 6. What love, and be thinking about this, because I want, I, want I want you to get there. What love could be so powerful, so enticing, so deceptive, that it could wrestle us away from the love that we were designed to have for God? And consequently, brings such grief and anguish to God. What, what love could do that? One pastor says this. The thing that always replaces love for God, the thing that leads us to this endless catalog of evil, is love of self. Somehow, some way, we all insert ourselves into the center of our world. Somehow, some way, all of us ascend to his throne, and we cannot and don't find delight in serving him. We're obsessed with our will and our way. We want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to set our own rules. We're obsessed with our own comfort and our own pleasure and our own happiness. And when you live for yourself, you will step over God's boundaries again and again and again because your heart isn't motivated by love for him. This is the beginning of all evil. Every act of murder and violence is rooted in self-love. Every moment of greed is rooted in self-love. Every kind of gossip is rooted in self-love. Every bit of disobedience to parents is rooted in self-love. Every moment of adultery is rooted in self-love. The evil of the world has happened because we no longer love God as we should. So now we begin to get a glimpse of the betrayal and pain and grief God has in Genesis chapter 6. Each time a human being chooses love of self over him. Mm. You can hear his weeping heart in anguish, can't you? Every time that we choose ourselves and sin prevails in our lives, we do great damage to the heart of God. Now listen, this is not meant to be like a spiritual beatdown. I'm not trying to depress you or anything like that. But I told you up front that in order to have a newfound joy and appreciation for the birth of Christ, we must first seek to understand and feel the weight of God's grief and sorrow in our sin. Put yourself in God's shoes for a moment. Just for a moment. In this moment of time, how, what would your response to be, be to this global departure from everything that you had planned and designed to do, you see this complete just thumbing of the nose, seeking of self, evil always. What's your response? How do you respond to that kind of thing? Well, 
Let's just see what God's response was. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created for the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and the birds of the air. I'm sorry that I have made them. So his response? Just scrap it. It's done. <clears throat> and a lot of people, they don't get that. They don't understand it. <clears throat> it's a hard saying. And so somebody much wiser than me said this once. He said, God, not in an act of ugly vengeance, but God, in holy righteous justice, says, enough. I made you. I owned you. I provided every good thing you could ever want, a life of beauty that you could have never made for yourself, and this is what you do. You turn your back on me. I'll wipe you out. I will clean up the earth. And God has every right to do that. And it's not unrighteous anger. It is holy and righteous justice that sends the waters of the flood to wipe the earth clean. And if we didn't know any better, if that's where the story ends, man, it could be like this bitter, painful end of this saga marked by rebellion and loss and ultimate destruction. And by God's grace, it's not the end, is it? I mean, we're only six chapters into this thing because we see this beautiful three-letter word. What's that beautiful three-letter word? But. All this huge destruction, all these things, and then we look at verse 7, or verse 8, rather. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's a glimmer of hope. Noah found favor and his descendants would be blessed. A few chapters later, we're going to see Abraham found favor and his descendants would be blessed. And then we have this promise in Genesis 26, verse 4. Hannah, can you put up Genesis 26, 4? It's Hannah's first time. There it is. Okay. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is God speaking to Abraham. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Who is God referring to? Who is the offspring? We are, generally speaking, yes. But who specifically in this verse is the offspring God is talking about? It's Christ. This is the promise that through Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is one of the covenants that God makes with his people. Jesus Christ. He is the only solution to this horrendous problem that we have seen magnified in Genesis chapter 6. Because we've got a huge problem in humanity, do we not? It's not a behavior problem either. Either we like to think that it is. If I just clean up my act, I just you know act right, then everything will be okay. But is that true? No, it's not. It is first and foremost, my friends, a heart problem. We have a heart problem. The heart, as the Bible says again and again and again, is the center of our being. Right? It's the beginning, the impetus, the, the core of everything that we say, think, or do. It all starts here. No amount of books that we read, no amount of time spent in counseling, no amount of money spent on life coaching 
is going to solve this ultimate problem. Now, are, are those things bad? No, not in the slightest. But they cannot and will not solve our need to be rescued from a heart that is sent, set on loving self above God. We are broken and we are in desperate need to be saved. And nothing is able to save us except for one thing, or one person, I should say. And Jesus is that one person. The one who came into the world, lived a life free from sin, perfect in every way. That's what qualified him to be the sacrifice and atonement for all of humanity. Sinless in his life. Laid down his life on our behalf, for you and for me. He took our punishment, our rebellion against God that we deserved. He died in our place that we might live with God, be reconciled to him and have the kind of love for God that we were designed to have. Let's, let's tie all this together. I'm going to read a quote that I think summarizes the tension that we live in as redeemed followers of Jesus. There are times when your thoughts and my thoughts are shaped by the love of God, but not always. There are times when the things we desire flow out of love for God, but not always. There are times when the words you speak are formed by love for God, but not always. There are times when you act in ways that you wouldn't act if you didn't first love God, but not always. You gave empirical evidence this week that the war of love still goes on in your heart. And that brought evil and chaos into the place where you live. And so everyone here this morning still needs to embrace the sad reality of this betrayal and the glorious celebration of the hope that is ours, represented by that baby in a manger who has come on this mission of rescue and deliverance and because he came, there will be a day when there will be a company of people whose every cell of their hearts will be controlled by love of God. And they will live inside of God's boundaries and live for his glory forever and ever and ever. So you see, the significance of Jesus coming into this world is it's the only thing that can break that love for self that grieved the heart of God. That's what this season is all about. That's what we're anticipating, that moment when hope was born. When we read those scriptures about the angels singing and the kings and wise men, everybody coming to celebrate and rejoice that's what they're rejoicing in, that hope is finally here. That apart from that, man, we're still separated and broken and grieving the heart of God in the way in which we love ourselves over and above him. My encouragement to us all is to find great joy and appreciation in the birth of Jesus Christ and what that represents for the hope that we have, 
Hope was born in that moment. But God. Right? But God. This should shape how we live, how we think, how we respond to one another. Because there's a whole world all around us who are hopeless. On the outside, yeah, it may look like they've got it all together. They do a great job of trying to keep it all together. But they're broken. They're hurting. They're hopeless. They're separated from God. My heart would be if you find some way, especially in, in these next several weeks, to incorporate some element of this hope into your conversation with those who are lost and dying, what a beautiful thing that would be. What a great honor and privilege that would be for us to be his representatives here on this earth, to share that hope with others. That's why we're here, my friends. That's why we're here. And there's an open door. That, the door is getting smaller and smaller as we move further and further away as a society from the things of God. But Christmas is still a thing. It's still a very much celebrated thing around the world. And so we have an open door. We have an opportunity to share that hope with others, don't we? I like to go into stores and listen to the Christmas songs that are on. Because if you hear certain Christmas songs, you hear the entire gospel being sung. And you're like, whoa. Hark the herald angels sing. Like, listen to the words. Just strike up a conversation. Like, hey, you like this song? Did you hear that verse? <laughs> Whatever way in which God pr- provides for you to do that. This is hard for a lot of us. I understand that. But this is, this is why we're here, my friends. And the manger and 2,000 years ago and his birth is why, why we can do it. Why we should do it. Jesus is the reason for the season, they say. Let's live it out every day. Shall we? All right, let's pray. Gracious and mighty God, you are the hope that we have in in this world. You and you alone. And we need you. We need you more than we are willing to admit sometimes, Lord, because it is a struggle. That old remnant of our hearts that seek ourselves above you is still there. And it will remain there until we are with you. And we'll be in battle against it, Lord God. But you've given us the victory. We're so grateful for it. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning that you would help each and every one of us to reflect on the goodness of you, God, in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And just thinking back in Genesis chapter 6 and the grief and the hurt and the pain that you experienced simply because you were abandoned. People wanted to be their own gods and live for themselves their way. And that's just not what you had in mind, Lord. And there is brokenness all around us, God, but there is also hope and light. 
We're so grateful for that. Let us rejoice always and celebrate regularly your great grace and mercy and love that's for all. Let us be ever mindful of these things we pray. Lord, we need you. We ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen.